Now you're going to turn in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 24. This is the last of our messages on the three last kings of Judah, and we're going to be studying a man named Jehoiachin this morning. As most of you have probably figured out by now, if you um, listen to me speak, um, I love history. I, I really like looking at what has happened in the past and figuring out how it um, could affect the future. And I know when I say the word history, most people's eyes kind of glaze over. After all, and for many people, history is their least favorite class in school. They remember having to memorize dates and times and events and different things like that. And it's unfortunate that that's the way history is taught because history is really meant to be taught to understand the significance of, of what was happening, not just the times and the dates and all of that. And the reason I like history so much is kind of revealed in one of my favorite sayings, is that those who do not learn from the mistakes of history are doomed to repeat those same mistakes. And it isn't just true of world events, though. It's also true in our personal lives. What I found in my own life is that mistakes can either crush you or be something you learn from. So I've, always, I've come to see that when I make a mistake and I mess up, it's something I can learn from. It's a teacher. And if I learn from that mistake, and we all make mistakes, we can learn valuable lessons if we allow it to teach us. Another favorite saying of mine that I learned in the military, and it's usually when you're doing something very physically difficult and painful, there's always a helpful officer or NCO around that would say, pain is just weakness leaving your body. I don't know if anybody remembers that from the military, but people would be yelling at all the time during, during hard PT or, or obstacle courses and, and different things like that. And... The same holds true in life. Pain could just be a weakness leaving your body. Pain and experiencing a negative consequence of an action is meant to reinforce us never doing that again. That's why young children sometimes get spanked, to reinforce important lessons and to learn to respect and even have a healthy fear of authority. And it's a truth we see in our personal lives, but it's also true in a national or international level. That those who ignore the history or the mistakes of history are doomed to repeat them. And that's why we've been studying these last three kings of Judah. We were looking at how their actions and attitudes brought down one of the most powerful nat nations in history up until that point. And it's my hope that through the study of God's word and the history that's revealed that we, as Bible-believing Christians, can stem the tide of judgment that is looming on the horizon and win back our nation for Jesus Christ. It's my prayer, my fervent prayer, that we will be one nation under God once again. So today we're going to learn about Jehoiachin, the last king of Judah. We're skipping over Zedekiah because he wasn't really a, 
a, a true king, but he was just appointed by the king of Babylon. So we're just going to look at Jehoiachim and call him the last king of Judah. And we're going to see this in 2 Kings chapter 24, starting in verse 8. Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for three months. His mother's name was Natusha, daughter of Elnathan, and she was from Jerusalem. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father had done. At that time, the officers of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, advanced on Jerusalem and laid siege to it. And Nebuchadnezzar himself came up to the city while his officers were besieging it. Jehoiachin, king of Judah, his mother, his attendants, his nobles, and his officials all surrendered to him. In the eighth year of the king of Babylon, he took Jehoiachin prisoner. As the Lord had declared, Nebuchadnezzar removed all the treasures from the temple of the Lord and from the royal palace and took away all the gold articles that Solomon, king of Israel, had made for the temple of the Lord. He carried into exile all Jerusalem, all the officers and fighting men, all the craftsmen and artisans, a total of 10,000. Only the poorest people of the land were left. Nebuchadnezzar took Jehoiachin captive to Babylon. He also took from Jerusalem to Babylon the king's mother, his wives, his officials, and the leading men of the land. The king of Babylon also deported to Babylon the entire force of 7,000 fighting men, strong and fit for war, and 1,000 craftsmen and artisans. And Father, as we read about the last king of Judah, I ask, Father, that you help us to see the similarities of the world that existed during this time and the world that we live in today, particularly when it comes to our country, particularly when it comes to our state, particularly even when it comes to our very lives, Lord. Help us to see the parallels and to help turn us from a path that is not pleasing to you and that can ultimately lead to judgment. Father God, I ask, Lord, that you help us in this. Help change our minds to follow you, Lord. I ask this in your name. Amen. There's an old saying that says, as the leader goes, so goes the people. Who the leader is, what they stand for, and how they live is critically important. It's important in a family. If you have a parent or a father or a mother who is not following Christ and who is doing their own thing, it can corrupt the entire family. If you work for a, a boss who is unethical, it could lead to the ruin of the entire company and have you out of a job. If you're in a military unit, it could be somebody who would just waste your life on a, on a stupid mission that, that has no military significance. And as we're witnessing today, a nation and, Amer and a world that has looked to America to show strength is now seeing only weakness. As the leader goes, so does the people. And the first thing we see about how God viewed Jehoiachin and therefore the people of Judah is seen in the prophet Jeremiah's words about him. We see that Jehoiachin was actually despised by God. In Jeremiah chapter 22, starting in verse 34, 
Jeremiah writes the words of God, and he says, As surely as I live, declares the Lord, even if you, Jehoiachin, son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were a signet ring on my right hand, I would still pull you off. I will hand you over to those who seek your life, those you fear, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and to the Babylonians. I will hurl you and the mother who gave you birth into another country where neither of you were born. And there both of you will die. You will never come back to the land you long to return to. Is this man Jehoiachin a despised broken pot or an object that no one wants? Why will he and his children be hurled out and cast into a land that they do not know? O land, 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 hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord says. Record this man as if he were childless, a man who does not prosper in his lifetime. For none of his offspring will prosper. None will sit on the throne of David or rule anymore in Judah. That's pretty harsh. God did not like this man at all. I mean, have you ever despised or hated somebody so much that if they were on fire, you wouldn't kick them in the face if it meant they landed in a lake? I mean, if you just had that one person that bothers you that much, you just want to see them go away? Well, that's the kind of language that's being used in the Bible for how much God despised this king. And because the king was the leader of the nation, he led his people into the same wrath that he himself had to face. And that's where Judah is at this time in history. God's hands are beginning to move in ways that will bring disaster upon all of them. The Bible says, and it's one of the scariest verses in the Bible in Hebrews, that it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And some may ask, well, I thought God was all about love. I thought God was all about mercy. I thought God was, was all about forgiveness. Why won't he just forgive? Why won't he just keep forgiving and forgive and forgive some more? Or there's a point where that forgiveness stops. There's a point where judgment has to come. And you see this in Genesis chapter 15. It's Genesis 15 is one of the more important uh, chapters of the Bible because it's God giving the promise to Abraham that him and his descendants will come into their own land someday. Up until this point, his family has been a nomadic family. They've just been wandering around the Middle East. But sooner or later, they're going to come into their own land. And God gives him this promise. He tells him it'll take 400 years for that promise to be fulfilled. And it's a verse. there's a verse in this chapter that is often read and just kind of read over and not really understood. And that verse is verse 16 in Genesis 15. And it, but it does give us a glimpse into the heart and sovereignty of God and how he exercises it here on earth. In Genesis 15, starting in the second half of verse 15, it says, You, Abraham... However, will go into your father will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. Now, verse sixteen here, in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. And this this part is where I really want to focus. It says, "For the sins of the Amorites have not yet reached its full measure." 
And you're thinking, oh, who are these Amorites now? The Amorites were a people who lived at that time in history in what is now known as modern Israel. They were a collection of the quote-unquote Ite people. The Hittites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, all those different tribes of people, they all lived in Canaan during that time. Every single one of them were rotten to the core. They were into all kinds of, of horrible evil, up to and including child sacrifice and worship of the various Canaanite gods that they worshipped. But God was giving them more time, 400 years in fact, to come back to their senses, 400 years to repent and come back to him. The Bible doesn't specifically say it, but Josephus, the Jewish historian, hints at it, that God sent prophet after prophet after prophet to them, but they would not repent. They kept killing the prophets, and sooner or later the judgment had to come. And what this verse shows us is somewhere in the divine scale of justice, there's a point of no return. There comes a time when an individual or a nation's corruption has become so horrific and so bad that God has no other recourse than to rid the earth of them. I compare it to cancer. How many people here would be okay with 10 cancer cells in their body? Come on, you have billions and billions of cells. 10 cancer cells aren't that bad, are they? Nobody wants any cancer within them because they know it's going to, it could metastasize and end up killing you. Sometimes people, nations, individuals get to that point where God has to judge in order to save the rest. How that works or where that line is for everybody, nations, I don't know. I know that when God does decide to move, he's completely just in doing so. And it's the correct time. The prophet Habakkuk had the same questions of God. God's answer to him was that judgment was going to come. He was a prophet along, around the same time as Jehoiachim. And he was looking out at the rampart, seeing the Babylonians coming. And he's, he's looking at them saying, how come, how come all this evil God is allowed to exist? How come you're not going to judge it? And God's answer was that judgment was coming. The Babylonians were coming as an instrument of his justice to this sinful nation. I don't know when that happens, but what I do know is that none of us here are guaranteed our next breath. None of us are guaranteed tomorrow. That's why it's critically important that we keep our accounts short with God. That we will not be ashamed when we appear before him. God's word that says that he will call every deed into judgment, whether it be good or evil. If your evil isn't covered by the blood of Christ, you're doomed. And this is where Jehoiachin is. He's under judgment. And because he's the king, the people followed their king into his depravity. And now they are under his judgment as well. But this isn't just a national problem. 
It's also true in our personal lives. It's true in your family. If you're living a secret life of sin, it will eventually come out, and probably in the lives of your children. And when I was preparing this message, God just showed me something. He said, you know, every decision you make is a spiritual decision. You're a spirit primarily. Therefore, every decision you make is a spiritual decision. And every decision you make strengthens forces in your life for good or for evil. And if you choose wrongly, there's a spirit that is set, strengthened and set free in the kingdom of darkness to wreak havoc on your life and havoc on the lives of those around you. But if you choose wisely, the Holy Spirit's influence will continue to grow inside of you and to bring blessing and life to you, and not only you, but those around you. And here is the truth, and it's seen over and over again in the Bible. As Jesus said, he'd say, verily, verily, right now. In the spiritual realm, there's no such thing as a secret sin. And the evidence of that will eventually be seen in the physical world and in your life, along with the consequences of choosing poorly. You and I, we never want to be in the position where we become despised of God. As the Bible says, or become a stench in his nostrils. And he begins to despise you as he did Jehoiachin. Because there is something else that is notable about this king, and that is his reign was very brief. The Bible is unusually specific about this, and I looked up the significance of why it was so specific. It says that he reigned, in, other, in Chronicles, it says that he reigned for ten day, or, uh, three months and ten days. Well, ten days is exactly how long it would take a swift messenger to ride, using various messengers along the way, to ride from Judah to Babylon. Ten days. Three months is how long it would take to marshal up an army, supply the army, and march an army across the desert to attack Judah. In other words, King Nebuchadnezzar heard about Jehoiachin taking a throne and immediately said, Nope. Nope, that man will not sit on the throne. And he sent his ar army as an exclamation point to that nope. Isn't that something? That you're such a poor example of a leader that the leader of the next superpower next to you decides that you have to be removed immediately? I again just want to point out just how wicked this man is. Because even when a, a man just as wicked as the nations around them saw him, he said he had to go. And Jehoiachim ignored all the advice that he has been given. He had prophets warning him. The big prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Habakkuk, they all were telling him, you need to turn. You need to bring the nation back to God. You need to repent. You need to lead a national revival. They kept telling him and telling him, and he kept imprisoning them and persecuting them. He ignored the warnings. And judgment fell. But before we're too hard on this young king, 
How many times has America received these warnings? How many times do do recognized prophets like David Wilkerson or Billy Graham or any of the other well-known and proven prophets have to speak before we'll listen? Not even if you're just looking at it from the national level. What about us personally? How many more times does the word of God have to speak to us before we repent and change our ways? And I thank Jesus, I thank him every day for his mercy, for his intercession for us in heaven. But sooner or later, either in this country or in our personal lives, the Father's mercy runs out. And he has to bring judgment. In America, we had our warning. I I truly believe September 11th was a direct warning from God about where we're going. And what would we do? What did we do? We had maybe a week of repentance. And then we doubled down and then tripled down on the fall into immorality. And morally, things are so bad right now. I've heard many preachers say, if God does not judge us soon, he owes Sodom Gomorrah an apology for acting too fast. I don't know about that. I think that God, when he decides to, to level judgment, that's up to him. It'll be the absolute correct time and decision to do it when he does it. But sooner or later, his mercy will run out. And if we look back to our our main text this morning, in the second half of verse 11, it says, Nebuchadnezzar himself came to Jerusalem while his officers were besieging it. Jehoiachin, king of Judah, his mother, his attendants, his nobles, his officials, all surrendered to him. In verse 13, as the Lord declared, Nebuchadnezzar removed all the treasures from the temple and from the royal palace and took away the gold articles that Solomon, king of Israel, made for the temple of the Lord. Then he carried away all, the, all into exile all of Jerusalem, all the officers, the fighting men, craftsmen, and artisans, 10,000 people, only the poorest people were left. Nebuchadnezzar came and absolutely bankrupted Israel, or what was left of Israel and Judah. Took all of its valuables, took all of its educated people, took all of its noble men away, and took all of the fighting men so that no one could ever, so that Judah had no chance of rising up as a nation and being taken seriously again as a superpower. You know, on September 11th, our wealth and our military were directly attacked. World Trade Center and the Pentagon. The two things that make America the greatest superpower the world has ever known were directly, um, took a direct punch to the nose, if you will. In essence, it was a warning slap in the face to show us that we're not as invincible as we think we are. And how did we react? We saw how we react. Watch the news. Just reading Fox News this morning. Immorality, violence, sexual deviancy so rampant that even we as God's people aren't even shocked about it anymore. We kind of say, yep, that's the world we live in. But what used to shock us, what used to have had churches 
uh, leading people into prayer meetings of repentance doesn't even shock us anymore. And just like Judah, I believe America is on a precipice of a major shaking. There's a book published in the late 1800s by a French political philosopher named Alexis de de Corville, who wrote a book called Democracy in America. And in that book he wrote, I saw for the greatness and genius of America in her commodious harbors and her ample rivers. It was not there. I looked in her fertile fields and boundless forests. I did not find it there. I looked for it in her rich mines and her vast world commerce, and it was not there. I looked at her Democratic Congress and her matchless Constitution, and it was not there. It was not until I went into the churches of America and heard her pulpits flame with righteousness did I understand the secret of America's genius and power. America is great because she is good. And if America ever ceases to be good, she will cease to be great. Listen again to that last line. If America is great because she is good, and if America ever ceases to be good, she will cease to be great. My friends, this sermon series was meant to show the parallels of what happened then and how they match up with what is happening right now where we stand as a nation. And you say, what do we do? We pray. We follow the prescriptions set in the Bible that if my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will come and heal their land. My friends, America is not being judged because of the action of their sinners. If America is going to be judged, it will be the actions of the church. Judgment begins at the house of God, the Bible says. We need to be the people who stand in the gap and pray. Pray for this nation. This series should teach us the following. The number one thing is that the way you live your life matters. Do you live what you preach or is Sunday just a check mark on a calendar to begin your week? The second thing is, are you willing to stand for righteousness? Are you willing to stand even as the mob screams at you, even as they call for you to be canceled, even as they call for you to be silenced? Are you willing to stand for righteousness? Or are you too afraid of the mob to speak up? And number three, and most critically, are you willing to stand up into the gap for America? Are you willing to stand in the gap for your family and for your neighbors? One of the saddest verses in the Bible, it's when I read it and I read it, I can almost hear the sadness, or, or, or if you could hear tears falling from God's eyes, you can just hear it as he said it. In Ezekiel twenty-two thirty, God said through the prophet, I look for someone among them 
who would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land so I would not have to destroy it. But I found no one. My friends, let's not be the people that lets our nation fall without at least fighting for her on our knees in prayer. Let's all stand. Father God, I know this series has been sobering. It's been frightening in some ways. It's been a little depressing perhaps, but it's also truth. We need to be the people who stand in the gap for our nation. So Father God, I ask Lord that you make us absolutely fearless during this time. That you make us strong and courageous. The same call you gave Joshua, you give to us now. Be strong and courageous during this time. That you help us to be willing to turn off the TV, to turn off the internet, to turn off the cell phone, whatever our distraction is, and spend time and pray for our nation. Pray that people turn away from what the kingdom of darkness is leading them into and see the light of the gospel. It's not too late. If we are willing to be those who stand in the gap, it can still yet turn. So Father, give us that kind of heart, not only for our nation, but even for our very lives. Those areas in our life that, that you've been on us for years to give up, to repent of, help us to, to be able to repent of that. Stand in the gap for ourselves for our neighbors, for our families. There is still time for you to move, Lord, and heal our land.